listen to anyway. They're very well done, um, and they're very helpful. So this four-week series, though, uh, is on Second Peter, and it's called Grow in Grace, and that's really what all the Sonship course is about anyway. Um, and we realized that a lot of what we said last week, that the church, uh, we as Christians have to be diligent in recognizing false teachers and false doctrine while trusting in the Scriptures, putting our trust in what God has said to us. Remember last week we said that George Barna stated that only 13% of teaching pastors, the guys and the the gals in the pulpit teaching crowds, teaching them on Sunday morning, um, like myself preaching to you right now, only 13% of them have a biblical worldview, which is extremely alarming. And I think... Uh, what Donna said about England and Australia, uh, we have gone that way. We are a post-Christian culture, and uh, that is alarming. Um, but by, uh, by learning to recognize false teachers, and there's a lot of people that say you know, we shouldn't be critical of somebody else's teaching. I disagree. Paul was very critical. Peter is critical in Second Peter. Um, we need to be critical of these things. Um, but a- as we are able to recognize false teachers, we are able to identify those who actually do teach truth, right? And, and by living into God's truth, we can grow in grace, which includes what Peter talks about today is living out of Christian virtues, right? So open with me in your pew Bibles to page 830, right in front of you, at the, in the chair in front of you, page 830, and follow along as I read Second Peter 1, Verses 1 through 15. Page 830, 2 Peter 1, 1 through 15. If you don't know it, 2 Peter comes after 1 Peter. (laughs) Well, uh, maybe you would know that, but anyway. Um, But it starts like this. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. So remember that. We receive faith. We don't make it ourselves. It's not in us. We don't, we don't have it in the beginning. God gives it to us. It's a gift, right? That's, second, that's uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians, right? Um, a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and, and, and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his glory and goodness, his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now stop there just for a minute. Uh, Let's reiterate some of those points. We have everything we need to grow in grace and peace. We have everything we need. God has supplied all of that. We have everything we need there uh, by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, by by the the fellowship of believers, things like that. And faith is a gift received by Christ by by which we can participate with God in His kingdom life, right? We've escaped the corruption of the world, and that word corruption literally means the decay of a dead body as they're put in the ground, right? So now Peter's going to explain how we are to live in this to keep that decay at bay, uh, living effectively, living productively in Christ, remembering that this is all a gift by the power of God through, through Christ. Have I, have I said that it's a gift? 
I want to reiterate that it's a gift. Remember, this isn't about earning salvation. That's not what Peter's talking about. We don't earn our salvation by works. Rather, it is about sanctification. It is about being made into Christ's likeness. The power to live this way is to live in the blessed gift of God. It really is. And uh, we need to be reminded of it. He continues, verse 5, For this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Now, I was thinking as she was singing that song, and by the way, thank you, Natalie. That was beautiful this morning. I was thinking of climbing the hill, right? I was thinking, yeah, gosh, you know, because of what you've done, I will climb that hill. I will make the effort, right? I will put in the effort in my spiritual life. I was talking to a young man here today that talked about his, his sort of like pushing into his spiritual life again and making the efforts, you know, like even just getting to church, like set the alarm, get to church, right? Like those are little simple decisions that make your spiritual life uh, more vibrant. Anyway, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. So some of these things are t- internal qualities for ourselves. Some of them are, uh, you know, involve other people. For if you possess, verse 8, if, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Now stop there for a moment. We do know, and I think we could all admit, that we do drift away in our thinking, in our understanding. Our spiritual life is like an ebb and flow, isn't it? Uh, Knowledge, as Peter uses it here, isn't just head knowledge, although I think he refers to that. Head knowledge is actually very important. Knowing the Word of God is very important. But it is coupled with this knowledge or this knowing Christ as a person. Just struggling to get close to Jesus. Because all efforts, all relationships take effort, right, to sustain them well. We know that. Um, Somebody's texting me. Um, Christ will never drop us. We've got to come to the conclusion on that. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. But we want to have a good, healthy marriage relationship with our bridegroom, don't we? Over time. We don't just want to have a bad marriage, so to speak, right? So when we tend to forget what, you know, what we were saved from, this, this pride and this lack of gratitude seeps into our lives and we drift away, sometimes searching for another thing or another philosophy or another person or something else to satisfy. It's like cheating in a marriage, right? It's like having that emotional relationship. Maybe, maybe you haven't fully gone into you know, the, the, the full physical relationship with a person, but you're getting your emotional needs met outside of your marriage when you shouldn't do that, right? Um, it's, so it's like cheating in a marriage. But Peter is going to remind us all that all that we need is right here at home with Jesus. Always, always, right here at home with Jesus. And this is a lesson that, I have to relearn all the time, right? And he continues, verse 10. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. 
In other words, to know that you're walking with Jesus. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you, good pastor, Peter's a good pastor, right? I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory. Now, in other translations, it says, I think it is right to wake you up. So to be woke is actually to be walking with Jesus, right? Woke in the positive sense, not in the woke in the negative sense. But So refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will, I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, in other words, after I'm pushing up daisies someplace, uh, you will always be able to remember the, these things. If they have daisies in Palestine, I don't know if they do. But anyway, let me pray for us. Whew. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for that worship. I thank you for the gifts that you have blessed Natalie with to bring us into the throne room. I thank you that we can do that together. And I thank you that people like Peter and so many others throughout history have sought to remind us over and over and over again what the gospel is and how to apply it to our hearts and our lives. And I confess to you, Lord Jesus, that I have hard times here. We all do. We want to know you. We want to go that step farther beyond just knowing about you but to actually knowing you, to living close in a close, intimate relationship with you, and therefore, healthy, close, intimate relationships with others. We want your life in us to push out against the pressures of the world, to sustain us when life is difficult, to push out against persecution so that we can live courageously in all goodness. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, the ermine, cute little thing if he comes up. Isn't he cute? The ermine is this little white creature, little, uh, you know, he's got like this snow white fur in the winter. And he instinctively protects his white coat from anything that would make it dirty, right? Uh, hunters don't set a snare or a trap for him. They, they actually uh, they find out where he lives in a little cleft of a rock or a hollow of a tree and they smear it with grime and mud and gunk, you know, at the entrance to it. And uh, then they set their dogs loose and the dogs chase the ermine and in instinctively he runs home. But because of the filth around the, en the entrance of his home, he will not go in. He will not go in there, Right. And he gets trapped by the dogs and captured while he preserves his purity. And for the ermine, purity seems to be more precious than his own life, right? Purity is more precious than life. And as Christians, we are called to grow in faithfulness through the virtues that are found in Scripture, practicing them to deepen our faith, to to, uh, to deepen our trust in Christ, right? They are reflective of the God that we serve. They are attributes of His character, things that we take on. The God in whose image we were originally created. And this tells us that doctrine 
which is the set of beliefs held by the church, or dogma, the set of principles laid down by God's authority and incontrovertibly true, hard word to say, but these things must be held in high regard and practiced well. Or, like we said last week, our theology, right? What we believe to be true of God and therefore true of humankind as informed by the Scriptures and nothing else is absolutely central to the Christian life. We don't play secular series or, or, or theories, I'm sorry, before the Scriptures and then try to prove the Scriptures by them. We don't, uh, we, we don't take that filter and place it over the Scriptures. No, we take the Scriptures and we, we measure everything against it. Because if you begin, like we said last week, if you begin with wrong assumptions, you end with wrong conclusions, which is devastating. If you begin with wrong assumptions, you end with wrong conclusions, and that is devastating. Even if you don't feel the devastation right now, 10 years, 20 years down the road, you will feel it. The Bible is God's word to us, breathed out by himself through human vessels, right? Our one objective guide. It is the one thing that we have that is our objective guide. We measure everything as truth or a lie against it. And truth, if you remember, sets us free, doesn't it? So we pursue purity of life in all of these virtues like the ermine protects its fur at all costs. Peter did this, right? We know that. He begins this letter using the word for servant, which is literally the word slave in the Greek. He, he puts emphasis on being owned by Christ, that Christ is his master, that he's being co- committed to following, following him and obeying him at all costs, completely in his life, right? Even to the point that Peter was martyred, he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified in the way that Christ was. So he told his murderers to crucify him upside down for the sake of Christ's name. Purity in Christ, more precious than life. Rather than compromise, rather than say, oh, I didn't really mean all that. You don't have to kill me, I'm okay. I'm going to play with the crowd now. No. He stuck to his guns, didn't he? And that cost him his life. Second Peter is sort of a farewell letter from the apostle in which he seeks to sort of combat the teaching of unethical behavior in the church, uh, the denial of the return of Jesus Christ, and the, uh, the denial of the final judgment and things like that. These are things that were being taught. And he's attacking false teaching. As I said, some people get nervous when you call out a false teacher from the pulpit or in public. Or, but Paul did this routinely. Peter d- does this right here. It is necessary in the church to call out false teaching and say, don't listen to that. Right? Teaching which seeks to twist theology and doctrine and dogma into something that is inconsistent with God. Most scholars date Second uh, Peter around AD 67. He died in 68, so he's had a few years to pastor and uh, watch as false teachers arise in the church and how they lead people astray and to have experienced all the damage that, that has done. And we're seeing that today in our, in our uh, churches in America right now. The specific heresy Peter was attacking was Gnosticism, which much of the New Testament battles. Paul battled that in his letters quite often. And without getting deeply into Gnosticism, it basically says you have to have a special knowledge to be saved. 
like some super spiritual special knowledge or a special super spiritual special knowledge to actually walk with God. It's an over-spirituality, a spiritual pride deviating from biblical truth or biblical teaching. But Peter, like any good pastor, uh, says that we have all that we need through our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Remember that the scriptures, although you don't fully understand everything all the time, they are written pretty much on a third grade level. They can be explored by anybody in this room, right? Modern Gnostic thoughts driving movements of social justice and human sexuality in our country right now, in our world right now, and some Christians have bought into all these arguments, claiming that you have to be woke, that you have to have some special knowledge, or you don't really get it. You're not really there. That's a lie. And that is all based on feeling rather than on solid Christian doctrine. I had another pastor write me last night, and I was just typing an answer to him this morning, whether or not I would teach on certain subjects from the pulpit. And I said, I I routinely do. Because people need to hear it. Right now especially, they need to hear it clearly. Not in a harsh, angry way, but in in a really intense, passionate way. They need to hear it. Otherwise, we're not teaching truth holistically. The gospel has to be taught holistically. It affects all areas of life, and people need to hear these things. Where was I? (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, others often elevate the life in the Holy Spirit this way as well, feeling that they alone hear uh, from the Holy Spirit. I had one person in my ministry years ago that used to just say that, like, oh, I I hear from the Holy Spirit. You guys aren't, aren't hearing it, you know. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute, that's not how it works. It's why prophecy has to be held with an open palm in the context of community, uh, knowing that everything must be confirmed in bodily life, that no one person is the authority in, in this life, that it's very that our senses that we get are very subjective. They're su- very subjective to my human nature that can pollute them. And so this is where definitive statements are actually harmful. When we're speaking directly from the scriptures, definitive statements are helpful. But definitive statements, when we're talking about prophecy or what our senses of what we're hearing, the feeling language actually becomes more helpful. So we don't say, the Holy Spirit says, or the Holy Spirit told me, like in some authoritative way. Instead, we say, I feel. I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying this to me. And blah, 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 and you say, say whatever it is. And then you say, what do you think? What do you think, people around me, right? Confirming it in community with other mature Bible-believing Christians and against the Scriptures, right? Peter immediately begins to tell us the, the knowledge of God is ours to, to obtain through Christ's power in us, Right? Grace and peace be multiplied to you, it says in the, in the uh, ESV, and in the NIV it says abundance, right? You're given an abundance, not just added bit by bit, but in a multiplicative fashion that I'm constantly adding to this and growing in it. And Peter indicates that grace and truth are ours in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we grow uh, as, we, as, we, or as we grow in our knowledge, as we grow to know God, we gain these essential sort of foundations for salvation and living. And the primary way we know and we grow in the no- is in the knowledge of God, and that is it's just through ingesting His Word, right? Just taking it in. 
the absolute one objective thing that we can rely on, the one thing that we should all be really well-versed in. Everything else is subjective. It's helpful, but it is subjective, and it needs to be tested. The Word of God is written, it is tangible, whereas our senses and feelings are all subjective. Not necessarily that those senses and feelings are wrong. They might be right, but they need to be held in a certain way. Knowledge also must exhibit itself in behavior, right? I can't just be a smart guy about God. It needs to be lived out. If it's not, it's ineffective and unproductive. Boy, I, I get convicted in that area quite a bit. I think we all do. We all wish we could do more, right? So in verses 5 through 10, Peter encourages believers to build their faith through right living. Verse 5 uses the word uh, virtue in the ESV and translated as goodness in the NIV. And that is really defined as behavior shown in high moral standards. Now, behavior shown not in high moral standards. Behavior shown in high moral standards. Really walking these things out. The church has traditionally recognized seven virtues. Faith, hope, love, which is charity. Prudence, which is wisdom, wisdom, justice. Fortitude, which is courage. Don't forget courage. That's a big one. And temperance, which is self-control. That's a big one, too, which we don't really think too much about these days, I don't think. And all the other virtues kind of fall under these seven in some ways, such as the virtue of humility would fall under temperance, right? And, and patience would fall under fortitude. The Bible teaches, though, that all Christian virtues fall under two overarching virtues of holiness and love. Very important words. On holiness, David Guzik writes, God is holy in the sense that he is both unique and there was no one else like him. And he is completely free of evil and infinitely good. Completely free of evil and infinitely good. And from his character flows his righteousness, wherein he always acts consistently with his moral uh, nature, his, his own holiness. He never once breaks the standard of his own holy law. And finally, he, he's just. And his justice requires that all men, all women live in accordance with the law which he established. He established. Remember that video from last week on morality, right? Thus holiness and righteousness and justice in a creaturely and recitative sense should characterize the Christian's disposition, he says. In other words, it's all got to be lived out in word and deed, right? And this is why the social justice movement or the human sexuality movement, which largely denies God's biblical moral law, is not a true or good movement, either one of them. But it is inherently damaging to humankind. It's, 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 it's perverted it, right? It's not like the basic stuff about it. We're not a, we, we are about those things. But we, it, it has perverted it. On love, he says, love is at the very heart of God and motivates him to speak, seek the welfare of lost and rebellious sinners. That love acts with the interest of others at heart. Thus, in Christian ethics, love is to be permeated with holiness and holiness with love. They find their fullest expression according to the wisdom that God gives us, since you can't be truly loving without a pursuit of godly holiness. 
Holiness keeps love from turning into idolatry and codependence, which the sexuality movement and the justice movements have done. They've elevated those things above God's holy law. They've disconnected themselves from it, right? There's one pastor in this area that said, if you want to come to a church that it holds to the Bible as God's word, don't come to our church. At least he's being honest. Because most are not preaching from the word of God anymore. And then love keeps holiness from turning into this aloof sort of austere judgmentalism as well. So holy love, therefore, must characterize the Christian who claims to be a disciple of Christ. And this is why we say that love without truth lies, and truth without love kills. Love without truth lies, truth without love kills. Very true statement. Kevin DeYoung asked, but why must we grow in grace? You know, why make every effort here in all these different ways to pursue holiness? And he states that the Bible is wonderful because it never gives us just one motivation for obedience, right? God says more, more than simply because I told you so like your mom did when you grew up. God motivates us from several different angles and, and based on several different reasons. And he, and he writes out this list of 20 different motivations that he finds in 2 Peter right here for a Christian to pursue holiness. And they are, I'll just walk through them. We pursue holiness that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Number two, we make every effort to grow in godliness because God has already set us free from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Number three, we grow in grace so we will not be ineffectual and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, we pursue Christ-like character so we will not be blind, having forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins, which we often become blind to that, right? Number five, we work at hard at holiness in order to make our calling and election sure so that we will not fall. Number six, we practice these godly qualities so that there will be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. We never want to walk this out in pride saying, well, Jesus saved me. I'm now I'm going to do whatever I want, right? Number seven, we pursue godliness because Jesus is coming back again in great power, and we know this to be true because of the glory revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration and because of the prophecy of Scripture. And I would add that tr Scripture is totally and absolutely trustworthy. Nothing that I have ever read in my 55-plus years of walking this earth has ever said otherwise. It has been time-tested over thousands of years. And in my life as well, right? Number eight, we walk in obedience to Christ because those who wander into sensuality are condemned and will be destroyed. If you live your life that way, Scripture says you probably are not saved, right? Um, number nine, we are serious about holiness. Now, let me stop there and say it's not that we don't stumble and fall. Uh, I don't want to sound like you know some moralist up here in some ways, but but. But when we totally have just given ourselves over, there's a sign there that we don't really know the Lord, right? Number uh, nine, we are serious about holiness because we believe that God knows how to judge the wicked and save the righteous. He does know that. I don't. Number 10, we turn from godly ungodliness because those, and this, this one's a harsh one to hear. He, his, his wording is pretty harsh. We turn from ungodliness because those who revel in sin are ugly blots and blemishes, irrational animals, unsteady souls, and accursed children. Oh. 
Uh, number uh, 11, we pursue holiness because sin never delivers on its promises. Number 12, we pursue holiness because those who live in their sin, again, are like those returning to slavery, returning to the mire, and returning to the vomit. You know that verse in Proverbs, some people like to quote, like, a dog always returns to its vomit. Horrible image, but it's very true, right? Number 13, we must remember to be holy so we will not be drawn away by those scoffers who will come in the last days following their own sinful desires. And that's what we talked about last week, that we are swimming in that right now. Number 14, we make every effort to be godly because the world will not always continue as it does now. The heavens and the earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destructive and destruction of the ungodly. There is a coming reckoning of humankind. I believe that. I preached a sermon probably two or three years ago on hell. It was the first sermon I've heard on hell. Now I did it, right? I, nobody preaches that sermon anymore. But there is going to be a, re, you know, a, a reconciliation uh, across the board. The, the eternal kingdom of God will be fully established. Do we believe that or not? Because it really makes a difference. Uh, number 15, we must take Christ-likeness seriously right now because we do not know when the Lord will return. Number 16, we pursue holiness because of all our works will be exposed on the last day. Number 17, we pursue holiness because whatever we live for in this life will be burned up and dissolved. Can you get the sense from some of these that there's, it's a fight against our own pride? I can't just live for whatever I want, say that I'm, I'm following Jesus and live for whatever I want, thinking that I'm not going to have to answer for that later. You will. You will. Right? Uh, number 18, we strive to walk in obedience and repentance because in doing so we may hasten the coming of the day of God. I want Jesus to come back right now. Amen. I do. Because that is the best thing. Right? I want suffering and war and all that garbage to end. Number 19, we live in righteousness now because we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will dwell forever. Number 20, we pursue godliness so that Christ might be glorified both now and into the day of eternity. So these godly virtues speak into how we live reflective of Jesus today. We are the people of God called to something different. Now, whatever label we use, doctrine, dogma, theology, biblically what we believe about God and likewise humanity defines how we live and is central to our Christian life. And we are called, we are called to grow in this knowledge, right? This knowledge of Christ and to live it out all out for the glory of God in our lives and the betterment of ourselves and the betterment of others. We are the salt and light. That's not a prideful statement. Because it doesn't come from me. It's just Christ using me. Again, exactly because beginning from wrong assumptions leads us to wrong conclusions, which is extremely damaging and leads to damaging behavior. I saw an Instagram post from a quote-unquote Christian friend of mine uh, on, on Instagram, obviously recently, which said, two ideas that will never agree with one another, made in the image of God, and total depravity. I don't know how you take that, but if he means that those two things cannot be true of us at the same time, he is not living out of doctrinal purity, and he's damaging. 
The Bible tells us very clearly we are made in the image of God, but that we, the fall has brought us to a state of total depravity, total need of salvation and restoration in Christ. Be careful what you like on those things, right? To deny either one of those points or to say that they are mutually exclusive is to undermine a core doctrine of the faith and to lie to people. Paul would not agree with that statement. Peter would not agree with that statement. We are made in the image of God, but sin has separated us from Him. Christianity demands repentance from sin and submission to the Lordship of Christ. And as Christians, we must be responsible with our words and with how we live, including what we like and dislike or share in social media. I've had this talk with my kids. You know, kids are just like, and they're like hitting that little heart button on every stupid thing that they see. And I'm like, why did you like that? Do you, did you see what they said? No, they haven't read what they've said. They've just looked at the person. It's the person, and so they like it. I'm like, read what they said. You do not want to like that statement. And they've started to think about that. I'm fired up. Anyway, J.C. Ryle explains, and I love how he says this. He says, mark what I say. If, now, don't get caught up in the language. We don't usually use the word doctrine or dogma, all right? But don't get caught up in the language. Listen to it. Mark what I say. If you want to do good in these times, you must throw aside indecision and take up a distinct, sharply cut, doctrinal religion. In other words, be well-versed in your biblical theology of God and of mankind. Because if you believe little, those to whom you try to do good, and I think when he says try to do good, he is talking about a holistic evangelism of people. Those who, to whom you try to do good will believe nothing. Because they usually bring them up to here where you are. So if you believe little, they're going to believe nothing. In other words, our primary goal of living virtuously is to glorify Christ and be witnesses of Christ, which is what, by the way, 1 Peter is all about. It's about our identity in Christ, and it's about our call to be witnesses with our lives and our words to, to Christ in this world. The victories of Christianity, whether they have been won uh, you know, by just, you know, wherever they have been won, where, wherever we've preached the gospel in this world, they have been won by distinct doctrinal theology, by telling people roundly of Christ's vicarious death and his sacrifice, by showing them Christ's substitution on the cross and his precious blood, by teaching them about justification by faith and bidding them to believe on a crucified Savior, by preaching ruin by sin, and redemption by Christ, regeneration by the Spirit, by lifting up that brazen serpent, if you remember that story, by telling men to look up and live, to believe, to repent, and to be converted. It's not inviting Jesus into your heart. It's repent and believe, repent and follow. This is the only teaching that God honors at home or abroad so let all the clever advocates of a new theology that deviates from sound biblical theology or doctrine, let them show us any place which has been evangelized without 
dogma by their principles, and they cannot, and they never will, and if it even looks so, it will not last because it's not true. This is why we want to do EV training, evangelism training in the fall, to know what the gospel is and to be able to share it well and to live it well. Christianity without distinct doctrine, the unchanging sort of set of beliefs that are held by the church that come from the scriptures is a powerless thing. It's a powerless thing. It may look beautiful to some minds, but it is childless and barren. It is childless and barren. There is no getting over the facts. The good that's done on earth may be comparatively small. Evil may seem to abound all over the place, and sort of the ignorant impatience may you know, sort of cry out that, that Christianity has failed, failed the world, but depend upon it that if we want to do good, if we want to shake this world up, if we want to see true transformation happen, that we must fight with the old apostolic weapons that the writers of the New Testament talk about. We must stick to our long-tested Christian dogma. No dogma, no fruits. No positive evangelical doctrine no real evangelization. Holiness is not a new topic for Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 14-16, he says this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. I had a guy use that verse against me once. Sometimes we translate that verse, or maybe it's another verse, I forget, be perfect as I am perfect. And he says, you're not perfect. I'm like, yeah, that's not what it means. It means I'm called to pursue this in his power. This guy was, oh, depraved dude. Just a, oh, I'll tell you that story another time. But it is a choice that we make in the power of the Spirit to walk in the truth of God, the truth that has been communicated to us by Him. And it doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens but by walking up that mountain, by living it out, by an intentional pursuit of God. That's why I said I'm not going to sugarcoat it anymore. You need to be at the sonship study. You need to be at church on Sunday mornings. You need to be here and there. Steph and I were just, she just went to the bathroom, but Steph and I were talking this morning about the influence of all the stuff upon us right now. You are swimming in it. You are pulled down by it. Don't think that you're above it. You're not. I'm not. All of us are being pulled down by it so strongly. So you need to make the decisions to get up, get out of bed, set your alarm and get to church, come to the community group, be a part of it, pray, live it out together, walk it out together, things like that. Sorry, I am like off on a tangent. But (laughs) our translation for holiness comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means to cut. To be holy means to be cut off, to be separate, to be to be separate from everything else. It doesn't mean that we extract ourselves from society and go live as hermits, but it does mean that we live differently. We live by a different king. We follow a different master, and that is very important. It means to be in a class all your, all your own, distinct from anything that has ever existed or ever will exist. And Kadosh also means 
to be entirely morally pure, to be holy as I am holy. All the time and in every way possible, privately and corporately, and men and women, listen to me. Your private life drives your corporate life. Your private life drives your corporate life. If you think, oh, nobody knows, I can do this over on the side. It's not the way it works. It, it affects it. Your private life drives your corporate life. So here's your homework. <laughs> so I'll shut up, right? Uh, meditate on this passage, especially those verses that talk about these, these virtues. Ask the Holy Spirit to, re- to, to reveal to you where you need to grow. I've also sent you another short article. If you're on our Breeze thing, if you're not, you can email me and I'll send it to you this week. But um, it's, it's called How Can I Glorify God? It's a very simple, short article, one pager, right? But it's also a different list of 20 things that we can do to, um, to glorify God in our lives. So take that, use it, and meditate it on your quiet times. It uses different scriptures from around the Bible. But pray God convicts you and moves you forward in living in these virtues and to pursue holiness. Begin this fall, turn over a new leaf, so to speak, to grow in grace. Be diligent in recognizing false teachers and doctrine while trusting Scripture. Learning to recognize false teaching and becoming able to identify those who actually do teach truth. Turn off the other voices. Living in God's truth, we can grow in grace and Christian virtue and we can Therefore, fulfill our calling as Christ ambassadors to the world. Remember, you have all you need. And doctrinal purity leads to holiness and love, deepening our experience of grace and peace. It is more precious than life. And I'm done. And I'm going to pray us into uh, communion. And as we do that, I want to invite you to come on up. I'm going to stick this microphone over here. If you feel like the Holy Spirit is leading you to pray something about our church or, or anything like that, feel free to come up to the microphone and pray that out loud. Um, and I will pray us into this, and then we will, um, as we as we. Uh, Natalie's going to play some bra- background music for a little while, and we can come up and pray if we want while everybody's doing communion, and then um, and then we'll go go into our last worship set. Oh, Holy Spirit, I'm wound up. I didn't expect that this morning. I ask for your blessing on this message, not in the sense that I want you to confirm what I say is right, but I want whatever is true of what I've said this morning to come out and, and be prominent and that everything that is just Jason would fall away. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this passage to us, to our hearts, to our lives, that you would deepen our knowledge, not just a head knowledge of you, but a deep, intimate walking out of life with you that is reflective of you, that is separate from the world, but is actually a light and salt to everyone around it. We praise you for that. We praise you that on the night that, that Paul writes, for I received from the Lord that I, I, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, 
on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Father, we know that that passage is seated in some correction, seated between a passage of correction in that church. So we want to take this seriously. We want to come to this table having asked your forgiveness for the sin that we've committed. We don't want to come here in flippant pride. We want to come before this table in remembrance and a humble spirit. So we pray that you would create that in us this morning. A humble spirit that is seeking you above all else. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.